I've put together a little mini-series that I'm entitling A New Way of Thinking. A New Way of Thinking. A big part of our growth is learning to think biblically. And over the next three weeks, I want to come back to the same statement week after week. Not because I don't have anything new to say, but because I think that this statement will help us to kind of capture what we're really after with this series. And it's a long statement, so let's read it and then break it down briefly here. Because your thinking is the key to spiritual growth, you must develop the ability to reason biblically by rooting your thinking in scriptural truth. I know that's a mouthful, and so what we're going to do each week is tackle a different phrase, a different aspect of that. So you'll see this a few times if you're here in the coming weeks. This first week, we'll take a closer look at the very first part. Your thinking is the key to spiritual growth. And we all know how important our keys are, and we've all been in a situation where we can't find them. Maybe you're in that situation every week somehow, and you can't find your keys. Well, early on in our marriage, Kate and I had a moment where we learned this lesson quite well. We were about a year after we were married. We were living in South Carolina at the time. We had a day off, so we drove up about an hour and 15 minutes away to North Carolina to a place called DuPont State Forest. And this part of North Carolina has tons of different waterfalls. We love hiking. It was a perfect match. I think we saw four or five waterfalls that day, some big ones, 100-foot falls. And the last waterfall we saw is called Hooker Falls. And it's not a really tall waterfall. I think it's only 8 or 10 feet tall. But it has a really nice, broad swimming area right underneath it. And so we swam around for a while and then made the short hike back to the parking lot. And as we stood there blinking at each other, waiting for the other person to open the car, we realized we didn't have the car keys. And so we searched our pockets and our backpacks, and it wasn't there. So we gingerly made our way back down to the waterfall area and looked at the spot that we put our backpacks and our shoes, and it wasn't there either. And it was at this point that one member of our party of two realized she never took the key out of her pocket before she jumped in the water. And we both had an uh-oh moment. That key was somewhere in the bottom of the creek, and that was a large area. The water is not crystal clear. It was murky and dirty, and we were up a creek without a paddle or in a state park without a a key. Thankfully, there was a couple of friends of ours who were close enough to our apartment, and they weren't doing anything that Friday night. They went to our apartment, found our spare key, drove the hour and 15 minutes up just to hand us the spare, and off they went. I mean, it took up basically their entire evening. And that was definitely one of the longest hours and a half of our lives, certainly of our marriage, as we sat there and worked very hard to not say anything mean to each other. And I think we succeeded, but there wasn't a whole lot of talking going on. But without that key, we couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't drive home. No key, no progress. Very simply put, right? And I think there are some parallels here with the Christian life. Without biblical thinking, There is no lasting spiritual growth. And one of the challenges that we face is that we don't realize how important our thinking is to our spiritual progress. I think if you were to ask yourself or ask another Christian, like, how are you growing in your spiritual thinking? They may look at you kind of funny because it's not something, ironically, that we think about a lot. Without thinking biblically, though, it is impossible to make progress in Christlikeness because your thinking is the key to spiritual growth which will then enable you to move forward in your spiritual walk. 
Now, I recognize that this may be a new topic to many of you, and that's okay. That's fine. We're going to just take it real slow today and start our mini-series at the very foundational level and ask the why question. Why is your thinking so important? Why is your thinking the key to spiritual growth? So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 17 through 24. And this passage is a foundational passage about spiritual growth in general, but also specifically about our thoughts. It contains several references to our thinking. And though there are many things we could explore from this passage, let's take this theme of our thoughts and really hone in on it this morning. As we read through the passage in the moments ahead, let's look for the references to our mind or our thoughts or our reasoning, because there are many. And this passage, I think, gives us three reasons why your thinking is the key to spiritual growth. Three reasons why our thoughts are so vitally important to our spiritual growth. And the first is found in verses 17 through 19. So let's look at these verses together. Verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. The first reason your thinking is key to spiritual growth is because spiritual growth is impossible with an unsaved mind. Spiritual growth is impossible with an unsaved mind. In verse 17, Paul begins this passage with an exhortation to walk not like the Gentiles walk. Now, he's not talking about a walking gait. Don't limp along like they literally do. But the word walk in Scripture refers to the way we live, our lifestyle. So Paul is saying, don't live like unsaved people. Why? Well, one very simple reason amongst many is that the life that they live, life before Christ, is dominated by evil thinking. It's impossible for unsaved people to make progress spiritually because of the blindness of their minds. And their sinful thoughts that control them then give evidence or are worked out in unbiblical lifestyles. And I wanted you to see three different things here. The descriptions of the unsaved mind prove this. First of all, in verse 17, the unsaved mind is, is futile or futile, tomato, tomato, right? Paul describes this unsaved mind as futile. That simply means it's without use or value, totally purposeless. Interestingly, this word is used in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used 39 times, and it's the word vanity in Ecclesiastes. Solomon says over and over and over again that life is vanity. Does he mean that life is totally meaningless and without purpose? Well, no, he comes to the conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes where he says that life apart from God is meaningless. Life is empty and purposeless without Christ. The unsaved mind does not know God and remains in spiritual darkness. It can't grasp the meaning of life because it doesn't know God. But second, the unsaved reasoning is darkened. The unsaved reasoning is darkened. Verse 18 says that their understanding is darkened. The word understanding refers to a person's ability to reason through a problem and render a judgment. So it's not simply just your comprehension level, but the process that you think, the way that you go about thinking. 
even the ability to think with moral clarity is not possible for those who don't know God. Their very reasoning, the process by which they go through to think, is darkened. In fact, I think it would be easier to play golf blindfolded than it is for the unsaved mind to reason in a way that pleases God. And I've not tried to play golf blindfolded, but after that first tee, it's impossible, right? Once you hit the ball, you have no clue where it's going. The unsaved mind is darkened. So the descriptions of the unsaved mind prove this, but then the pursuits of the unsaved mind prove this as well. Where does this futile, darkened reasoning lead to? Well, it only leads to evil, to more and more desires for evil. The unsaved mind, verse 19, hands itself over to wickedness. And this, is, this comes from the phrase, having given themselves over to lewdness. Let's think about this for a moment. Because this shows the depth of the depravity of the unsaved mind. The word given over is the same word for betray. To deliver someone over like Judas delivered over Jesus was to betray them. The word translated lewdness communicates the abandonment of moral standards. Being unrestrained in the pursuit of sinful pleasures. Put that together, what does it mean? The darkened mind of our unsaved culture not only engages in immorality and enjoys impurity, but it actually like gives itself up to engage in this type of depravity and this type of wickedness. We could say that the unsaved mind bows at the altar of wickedness, of immorality, of impurity. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse 19 continues with the phrase to work all uncleanness with greediness. The unsaved mind greedily practices impurity. Now when the Bible here says by working all uncleanness, it's not talking about the practice of hard labor. It's talking about the consistent pursuit of something. So the unsaved mind consistently pursues all types of uncleanness. And it does so with greediness. That word greediness has the idea of insatiability, the fact that I can never get enough of it. If you're like me, you can't get enough of ice cream. You just love it. You could eat it for dinner. I've done that before. Then you regret it later. But even that desire is not insatiable. There is a point where I get to where I say, I don't think I can have any more of that dessert. Their insatiable appetites are never satisfied when it comes to the pursuit of filth. They're unashamed and unabashed in what they run after. We could paraphrase verse 19 this way. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. That's what the darkened mind loves, and it leads to two chilling results. The first result is in verse 18. The unsaved mind is alienated from God. The unsaved mind is alienated from God. Because of the sinful nature of the mind, Unsaved people are alienated, estranged, separated from God. And they're not only separate from God, they're spiritually calloused. They're spiritually blind. They're hard in heart because they've chosen to reject the truth, which means they are choosing to refuse to listen to what is right. This is what the futile, darkened mind always leads to. It leads to spiritual callousness that refuses to, to hear God. And I know what you're thinking because I thought about it a lot this week too. This is our culture, is it not? There is much we could say about our culture, but I want to set aside that application for a moment because I want to keep focusing on this idea of our spiritual growth. It's clear that spiritual growth is impossible for an unsaved person. 
For them to grow spiritually, they need to have a new mind and a complete change of thinking. And so the logical question then is this, have you put your faith in Jesus as Savior? Or is your mind still darkened? If you've never repented of your sin, you've never turned away from evil, if you've never turned by faith to Christ and trusted him as Savior, I appeal to you to receive the gospel. In fact, the gospel is called the light of truth. The light of the world is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, The God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so if you are still without Christ, you are blinded spiritually and separated, alienated from God. For those of us who are believers, we should consider our own minds. And there are many applications we could make. I just want to point out one. Like a fish who is unaware of the water that it swims in, we have to be aware of our cultural surroundings. Because it, we just live, right? We go to work. We shop at different places. We interact with people. And we're not really working diligently to think about the influences on us if we're not careful. We have to actively practice Romans 12, 2, which says, do not be conformed to the world's way of thinking. You may have heard that word means to be pressed into the mold of, to be shaped. My children are young. They like Play-Doh. We don't like Play-Doh, but they like Play-Doh because it makes a mess. And they love to push it in molds and shape it and then leave it on the table to harden like rocks. (laughs) The world is trying to do that with us, with our minds. It's trying to shape us, to get us to think like them. And the Bible says the corruption around us must not shape our thinking. We have to resist that actively. The unsaved mind is futile and darkened, unable to grow spiritually. But Christians are different. We can grow spiritually, as Paul tells us and even commands us in verses 20 and 21. Let's look at these two verses together. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul's writing here in these two verses introduces us to the second reason your thinking is key to spiritual growth. And the answer is this, because learning Christ is fundamental to the Christian life. Learning Christ is fundamental to the Christian life. Our thinking distinguishes us from the world. Verse 20 introduces a contrast. The first word of verse 20 is the word but. Meaning that the way that the Gentiles live, the way that the unsaved mind operates is not true of us. There's a contrast between the way the world thinks and the way we think as true believers. So Christians are not simply different in lifestyle although that's true. We're not simply different in the way we talk, although that is true. We are fundamentally different in the way we think and in the way we believe. How? Because our thinking distinguishes us from the world because we have a new mind. At salvation, we received a new mind, and that new mind is then capable of learning about Christ. The only reason we can actually receive truth is because God has granted it to us in the form of a new mind. Notice what Paul again says in verse 20. You have not so learned Christ. Believers did not learn to practice immorality and wickedness when they came to Christ. Believers have a new mind, a new way of thinking, 
about all of the evil in the world. At salvation, maybe you're even thinking of this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. At salvation, we have been made new creatures or new creations in Christ. All things have passed away. The old has become new. Being a new creation includes our minds. Our minds are made new, and they're able to learn Christ. At salvation, our minds are cleansed. They're purified. They're washed, scrubbed clean through the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus as we embrace the truth in him. That's what verse 21 says. As the truth is in Jesus. So believers then, if you claim to be a believer, you are a person of the truth. We are people, we are a community that stands for truth. And that stands in stark contrast to the world. The truth is metaphorically light. The world is metaphorically dark. We accept God's truth in Jesus and embrace it by pursuing a deeper knowledge of Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is what makes it possible for us to learn Christ. Because learning Christ is not just the entrance into the Christian life, it's also the fuel of spiritual growth. It's the way that we grow in sanctification. You don't simply grow in sanctification by just doing the right stuff. We're going to get to that in a moment. At sanctification or in sanctification, we grow by learning truth. Salvation makes us lifelong Christ learners. Again, that's what verse 20 says. You have not so learned Christ. Verse 21 continues in the same vein, using two verbs, heard and taught, to describe how we learned Christ. We were taught by people who showed us the word of God. We listened to teaching. We could even say we sat under instruction from and about Christ. That means that every true believer is a student of Jesus Christ learning from the master teacher. The Christian life, then, is, is a lifelong learning Christ. And you thought you were done with school in high school. It's a lifelong pursuit of studying Jesus so that we can become more like him. And I like the definitions for the word learn in verse 20. I keep coming back to that word learn. And it's really a, quite a vivid word. The word learn means to gain knowledge by skill or instruction, to acquire information as the result of instruction, whether in an informal or formal context. The Lord Jesus invites us to learn of him. In Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, he says, come to me. You remember these verses? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. When you think of learning, don't think of high school. Don't think of sending your kids off to school at a desk. Instead, think about discipleship. Because discipleship, one of the key pillars of the local church, discipleship is the process of learning to be a better Christ follower. Discipling someone else means we help them to learn Christ more, and we train them to be a better student a disciple, then, is a learner. And believers embrace the lifelong joy of studying Jesus because it results in transformation. Studying Jesus should result in us looking like him in character, living like him in lifestyle, and thinking like him. This doesn't come, then, by simply accumulating more Bible facts or Bible trivia. If you're good at Bible trivia, that's great. But Bible trivia does not equal spiritual maturity. 
learning Christ goes far beyond the facts. To be a Christ learner means that we take truths about Jesus and it shapes the way that we live. Because the best learning teaches you not only what to do, but how to think. Let me give you a quote that I just really love that that drives this point home. For the average American, knowledge is facts to be learned, is it not? This secular notion pursues knowledge for knowledge's sake. The idea behind this view is to amass as much learning as one can in order to know more than the next person. Learning, in other words, is self-serving. This self-oriented view of learning is antithetical to the biblical view. For the Christian, knowledge is not facts to be learned, but rather truth to be lived. Wisdom is not acquiring knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but rather for the sake of implementation. Learning Christ always results in real spiritual change, real life change. And this really leads us into that third reason why your thinking is the key to spiritual growth. And it's found in verses 22 through 24. Would you read these verses with me? 22 through 24. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to its deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. These verses are teaching us the process of learning Christ. Okay, so back up for a moment. Verse 20 says, you have not so learned Christ. Well, what does it mean to learn Christ? 22, 23, and 24 tells us how we learn Christ. And as we'll see, spiritual transformation requires a renewed mind. This is the third reason your thinking is the key to spiritual growth, because spiritual transformation requires it. You cannot be transformed without it. Now let's talk about verses 22 through 24 for a moment, and then we'll circle back to verse 23. These three verses continue the sentence Grammatically speaking, the sentence begun in verses 20 and 21. And each verse has a key instruction in it. Verse 22 says to put off. Verse 23 tells us to be renewed. Three of you got it. Okay. And verse 24 says to put on. Okay, you can answer that, okay? Verse 22, to put off. Verse 23, be renewed. Verse 24, put on. Okay. These three actions describe the process of Christian growth or sanctification. If someone comes up to you and says, I'm a new believer, how do I grow spiritually? This is what you say. You are to put off the old man, you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you are to put on the new man. Our focus today is on the middle verse, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The word renew doesn't simply mean to make new. There's an added nuance to it. It means to cause something to become new and different with the implication of becoming superior. So like a successful transplant surgery where the patient not only regains their health, but increases their quality of life, renewing our minds makes us new and improved. And we need a new mind because of verses 17 through 19, right? Because life without Christ is darkened futile in its thinking. When we come to Christ, we learn to think differently. Following Christ, then, means that we have a change in thinking. So this renewed mind is extremely important, very simply because a renewed mind is part of God's process. 
for spiritual transformation. And this may be too simple to even point out, but let's not miss the fact that God has included your mind as part of his process for spiritual growth. A new way of thinking is part of how we grow. And if God chose this as part of his process, we can't ignore it and expect to grow. If we ignore the, one of these steps, we will not grow spiritually the way we ought to. If we believe that spiritual growth happens only as we replace sinful actions with godly ones, we are tempted to be very legalistic. We start to emphasize what we look like on the outside while undervaluing what we are on the inside. We start measuring spiritual growth with a checklist since spiritual maturity is now simply a matter of doing things the right way. That's if you don't understand that renewing your mind is a key part of this process. Also, if we removed this step from the process, what are we left with? We are left with the commands to put off and to put on. And there's a secular term for that in psychology. That's called behavior modification. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. But does that lead to flourishing and spiritual growth? No. Spiritual change is much more than that, not less. A renewed mind does lead to spiritual transformation. A renewed mind, second, will lead to a transformed life. The only way to be transformed is to have a complete change, both in thinking and in action. If you want to picture it with an illustration, the renewed mind is the hinge of the doorway, that you put off one and put on the other, but the hinge is in the middle. The renewed mind is the key. Changing your thinking, then, is the engine of spiritual growth. How do you propel yourself forward? It's not simply by doing or not doing. It's by a change in how we think. Without it, there's no true transformation. So if we desire to grow, we have to renew our minds. We have to include a change to the way that we think. Let's pause for a moment and consider the alternative. If we never change the way that we think, what is our default setting? Futile and darkened. That is the way that we were born into this world until we came to Christ. So if we do not change the way we think, we will revert to what is natural to us. Changing your thinking is the engine of spiritual growth. And the reason for this is profoundly simple. Your thinking controls your actions. Your thinking controls your actions. Our words, our actions spring out of our choices and thoughts. So we could put it this way. Behind every action we take is a choice that we make. Behind every action we take is a choice that we make. Maybe you're thinking, but there are some things I do just out of impulse or reaction. Or what about habits that I've built? What about all that? How does that work like doing things out of a routine. Well, there are a couple of answers, I think, to that. First, many times our choices are the result of long processes of thinking over time. So the way that we react actually betrays how we think over time. A reaction, or a habit especially, is the fruit of many years of thinking. But second, our thoughts are shaped by what we believe. Our choices and our actions may not have a long and complex thought process, you may not be faced with a simple decision of what to order at Chick-fil-A. For me, it's a very simple process. Okay, I know what I get. 
in there may not be a complex data analysis and I'm going to do a, a pros and cons list. No, you, you may just kind of just make a decision. But ultimately, the decision you made is shaped by what you believe. That's why we have to learn the truth about Jesus and believe it. At the heart of every decision then is a belief. And I'll illustrate this in a couple moments. But at the heart of every decision is a belief, specifically a choice to believe or to not believe truth about God. The choice that you face today is a choice to will you believe what God has said in his word or will you believe someone or something else? Will we believe truth or will we believe a lie? Our beliefs reveal who is really in control of our hearts. If you were to picture your heart and put a metaphorical throne on it, who is the one who sits on that throne? Who wears the crown on its head? Who issues the decrees that then affect everything you do? Is God the one that does that? Is he the one that that is in control of your heart? Or is it self manipulated by fear or pride or comfort or pleasure? We could illustrate this process this way with a flow chart. Beliefs lead to thoughts which lead to actions. And if you're thinking, ah, I'm not sure I'm, I'm hanging with you, stick with it. We'll illustrate it in a moment. But if you can get this, this is so helpful. So, so helpful. Our beliefs, what we believe in our hearts about God and about the world around us control our thoughts and our thoughts control our lives, our walks. A renewed mind then is this key that leads to a transformed life. Your thinking is a key to spiritual growth. The big question then is how? What does it look like? Give me something practical here. How do I change my thinking? If my thoughts are that important, how do I change the way I think? And that'll bring us to our third subpoint here. A renewed mind must be cultivated. If spiritual transformation requires it, we must work to cultivate it. Now notice with me in verse 23, the words be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed is in the passive voice. You say, I'm not a grammarian. This is important though. Passive means it is not something you do. It is something that is done to you. So how does that work? If I'm commanded to do it, and yet it's not something I do. Interestingly, every time scripture calls us to be made new or transformed, it's in the passive voice. You are not able to be transformed on your own. We cannot make our minds new by sheer effort because it's a work of God's grace in our lives. The Spirit of God transforms us and makes our minds new. But we can cultivate and we must cultivate the right conditions that lead to spiritual transformation. Like a farmer that prepares the soil and waters it and plows and plants and does everything to cultivate the right conditions for that crop to grow, we must cultivate our own hearts and our minds so that God will transform us by his grace. And there are three actions, I think, that we can take to cultivate our minds so that the Spirit can renew them. I'll give you these principles, and then I'll give you an example to try to clarify it. First, we must believe truth about God. We must believe truth about God. If our beliefs control everything else about us, we have to confront sinful beliefs with truth about God. Well, what truths about God shape us? Truths like his character, the fact that he is loving 
and gracious, compassionate and just, all-knowing, omniscient. These truths about God are not just for theologians. They are very practical as we apply them to our lives. Well, truths about God's promises also affect the way we think, that God has promised to be with us and not forsake us, that he's promised to give us all things that we need according to his spirit. The fact that he's promised in Philippians 4 to provide for our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Truths about God's character, his promises, even just scriptural commands that God tells us, this is how you ought to live. These are the truths about God we need to believe. And when we take these truths and inject them into our thinking, we then choose to believe God. We're gaining a new perspective in life. When we know God, we can think rightly about our situation, think rightly about ourselves, think rightly about the world around us. So really the secret is you have to know God. You have to get close to God. You have to study God. You have to learn to walk with God. Spiritual growth will only be as fast and as deep as our relationship with God. Second, I've got a competing preacher over here. Second, identify the lies we wrongly believe. A second way we cultivate a renewed mind is by identifying these lies that our flesh or the devil tells us that we have to resist. Lies hold us captive, so fight them with truth. Let me give you an example. In the Garden of Eden, why did Eve sin? Because she believed a lie. The serpent slithered in there and whispered falsehoods about God and about the world around her, and she believed him. She chose to sin because she acted on the lie. One of my professors says this, behind every sin is a lie. Behind every choice to sin is the belief in something that is not true. This will take some time and effort to implement and to think this way. I know it's difficult, but the lies we believe are often very subtle and well ingrained into our thought processes. Perhaps the best way to identify them is to start with the sinful choice you make and then think about what motivated you to do that. Why did I do that? What did I want in that situation? Why didn't I obey scripture? And these diagnostic questions will help you identify the lies in your life, in your heart, behind your choices. Well, after we identify the lies, we have to replace them with godly thoughts. Replace sinful thoughts with godly thoughts. That means we have to learn to track our thinking. We cannot just be whistling through life with no concern for what's going on in our minds. We have to track our thinking so that we can replace wrong thoughts about God with truth. And it may take some time and self-reflection, but it's well worth it. Now, let me try to illustrate this, try to make it clear. I know it's unclear, but let me try to make it clear with an example. Take the sin of complaining. A sin that no one here struggles with, I'm sure. But the sin of complaining, right? One of the respectable sins, things that we do that aren't really that bad. Well, where do we complain? Everywhere. At home, we complain. At work, we complain a lot. At church, we complain. In traffic, we complain. In the checkout line, waiting for the internet to load, we complain. Well, what do we complain about? Again, everything, 
We complain about big things sometimes, but often it's the little things, right? It's, it's, it's the food that your spouse cooked that we didn't like. Or a person who annoys us, we just kind of complain about them. Or doing a small task that requires you to get off your backside. Oh, it's annoying. I don't, I, and you start complaining, right? And these complaints are the sinful fruits that other people see or hear. Well, what is complaining? Let's get a definition. Complaining is me expressing my displeasure with something. I have decreed that this is displeasurable, and I am going to vocalize that for everyone to see and hear. Well, why do I do that? It's because I wanted something I didn't get. It's just that simple. We can put really fancy window dressing on it, but really complaining is just, I didn't get what I wanted, and I'm upset about it, and this is how I'm going to vocalize it. So let's work through this. What lies do we believe when we complain? Well, how about, I want that to make me happy, or I need that, my life is incomplete without it, or I just desire that, and so I'm going to get it, or I'm inconvenienced, and I don't like that. Or it's, it's not what I wanted to do, so it's, it's not my preference, and I'm going to just tell everyone it wasn't my, my preference. Behind every one of these lies is a wrong belief. Let's work back through this. The lie says, what I want will make me happy. That is idolatry. That is looking to something other than Jesus to satisfy us. The lie of, I need it, my life is incomplete without it, shows us that we are believing a lie about our purpose in life. We were created for God alone, and the scriptures say that we were complete in Christ. I simply want it because I desire it, is the lie. That's just plain selfishness. I get to choose what I get in life. Well, how about this one? I'm inconvenienced and I don't like that. Well, that's, that's speaking to the comfort in our hearts, right? My comfort is the greatest priority in life, and when someone crosses my comfort, I'm going to let them know. Well, what about it's not what I wanted to do, so I complain. That speaks to our preferences. If I didn't want it, then it shouldn't have to be. We are not God Almighty who decrees because he wants it. Complaints are basically us saying, I am not God, but I should be. These wrong beliefs then reject truth about God. We don't believe that God is wise, that he chose these circumstances for us. We don't believe that God is good because if he was, I would have what I wanted. That's a skewed version of God's goodness. We don't believe God's promise of supplying all of our needs. We don't believe God's commands are good and right because he's commanded us in Philippians 2.14, a verse that is very common in our household, to do all things without complaining or arguing. Ultimately, we have made that thing we want an idol because we don't think we can live without it. And that means that ultimately our complaint is an attack against God because we're expressing our displeasure with him and our circumstances that he has chosen. Well, maybe you've never thought about complaining that way. But when you get down to the root of the matter, complaint is actually betraying your lack of belief in who God is and what God has promised. So to replace these lies, we must combat them with truth. To stop complaining, it's not simply to say, well, I'm just going to stop saying that. Because you know how hard it is when you get back into that situation. And if all you're saying is, well, I'm just going to try not to complain, it just kind of just spills out of you, doesn't it? It just kind of 
launches itself out of your heart, you're going, oh, I didn't mean to say that, but I did. But when you address your thinking, you are then changing the way that you are viewing the whole situation. These lies must be combated with truth. Truth that God is wise, so what he's chosen is best. Truth that God is good, and he sends good things into my life. Truth that God will provide for my needs, so if it's not provided, I don't need it. Truth that my comfort is secondary to God's purpose of Christ-likeness for me. Truth that we can obey God's commands by his Spirit's power. God's commands are not too hard for us by his Spirit's grace. And when we replace these lies with truth, we can start replacing sinful actions with godly ones. Instead of complaining, we now can see that we can rejoice in all circumstances, that we can be content with our situation, that we can choose to give thanks with what God has provided, that we can be satisfied in God alone, that we can embrace the role of a servant because serving Christ is greater than getting my preferences. And when we view our sinful choices through this lens, that leads to true transformation. Because we're not simply trying to do something or not do something. We are learning to think completely differently about everything in our lives. And I hope that this gives you some help to implement it in your lives. And a great way to remember something is to immediately apply it. So I encourage you when you go home today or tomorrow morning, Don't stay here tonight, but when you go home and tomorrow morning you wake up, I encourage you to take the area that is causing you the most spiritual damage and list out all the sinful fruits that are included in that area. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's a lust and immorality problem. Maybe it's a distrust of other people. Maybe it is complaining. Find out or anger. The list can go on and on and on, right? But take the area that is causing you the most spiritual damage and list out all the sinful fruits, the sinful actions that are included in this area. And then prayerfully start to identify the lies that lead you to sin in this way. What are you choosing to believe like Eve believed the serpent? What are you choosing to believe that is causing you to sin? And once you have identified those lies, go back to God's word replace them with truth. And this is probably going to feel a little weird at first. When you first learn to ride a bicycle, it's, it feels a little bit weird. When you first learn a new skill or a new hobby, it, it's kind of awkward at first. It's kind of clunky, like you don't know what to do with your hands or your feet. But God's grace through his spirit will help us because it is his will for our minds to be transformed. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. This is God's will for you to have a sound mind. And though it may feel impossible to change, God has already equipped you with his spirit so that you can grow. But you have to remember that God doesn't change you against your will. You have to participate in the process of sanctification. But by the the grace of God and by the spirit of God, you can make strides because this is what God intends for you to do. Your thinking really is the key to spiritual growth. And so no matter how old or how young, God can help you change your thinking. And so let's conclude our service by asking him for grace to help us do that. Father, we come before you, and perhaps this is a new topic for some, 
but it's so clear, it's right in your word that we are to have a renewed mind. So I pray that as we go from here and meditate on these truths, that our hearts would be filled with understanding, that we would make the connections in our minds, that we would make the connections with the things that we are doing and see how we believed lies, we rejected truth about you, and that through your Spirit's help, we can develop a sound mind so that we may obey your word and put off ungodly thinking and put on right living and right thinking. And so, Father, we ask for your Spirit's grace with all of this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.